Well, it looks like summer has finally come. Looking at the weather forecast for this week in the Seattle area, going to be in the 70s and 80s, which is just perfect. I wish it would stay like that all summer. And looking at the weather report at Lake Chelan, they're going to be in the upper 80s and 90s, so it looks like they're going to enjoy some good weather. Debbie and I lived in the Wenatchee Valley for several years in the early 1980s. We began the work of Young Life in the Wenatchee Valley. So we are very fond of that area. We spent a lot of time at Lake Chelan when, uh, when Scott, our oldest, was uh, just a baby and when Shane was born as well. Speaking of camp, uh, this past week, Union Gospel Mission, we took 100 men over to uh, Sun Lakes near Ephrata, Washington, and had a wonderful time. David Floyd and I were over there with our, with our guests. And most of the men had never been to camp before, never had they had a camp experience. So getting them away from the city and the noise and the hustle and bustle and the rigors of a recovery program was just delightful. There was fishing and hiking and swimming and cliff jumping and on and on it goes. Silly games, just like at any junior high or senior high camp. It was really fun to see 100 grown men act like junior hires at a camp. It was just delightful. The theme for our weekend, uh, away with our guys, was, was Romans chapter 6, verse 4, walking in newness of life. And God showed up in extraordinary ways uh, this past week. My sense is that many of our men prayed to receive Christ, evidenced by the fact that 19 men were baptized on Thursday night uh, at Sun Lakes. God indeed showed up. I'm excited to see how these men are going to now walk out this newness of life that Romans, 6, Romans chapter 6, verse 4 says. So the theme, walking in newness of life, is one of the themes that we see here in Romans chapter 6. And the question is, how do we get there? How do we get from our old life to our new life? How do we get from walking in a sinful life to walking in an obedient life in Christ? And that's what I think Paul is addressing here in Romans chapter 6. How do we, how do we live a life where sin has no dominion over us? And the answer is, our union with Christ in his death and resurrection is the foundation for separation from sin and walking in newness of life. Let me repeat that. Our union with Christ in his death and resurrection is the foundation for separation from sin and walking in newness of life. So I said there wasn't three points this morning, but let me share with you three points. <laughs> Number one, we have died to sin. Number two, we have been baptized into Christ's death. Number three, we have been united in Christ's resurrection. The first thing to say this morning before we actually jump into Romans chapter 6 is that we're joining Paul halfway through a conversation that began in, in chapter 5. Paul, in those first five chapters, has been laying the theological foundation about the nature of God's grace the reality of justification by faith, who Jesus is to the world, and how we receive forgiveness of sin through the sacrifice of his death on the cross. The title for the series, this series, as we go through Romans, is A Reliable Love. And last week, Jimmy focused on chapter 5, verse 1. 
Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he jumped down and focused on chapter 5, verse 8. But God proves his love for us, for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We have been brought into right relationship with God through Christ's death on the cross. We appropriate this good news by faith. And he did this not because we're good enough or good looking enough or rich enough or part of the right denomination. It was simply his love and grace and mercy. It's a reliable love. Chapter 6 then marks a new section in this letter as he begins to develop his thinking and outlining the practical implication of God's grace for each one of us. So Paul begins chapter 6 by asking a rhetorical question. What then are we to say? In other words, in light of all that Paul has written in chapters 1 through 5 about God's grace and love, here's the question. Should we continue in sin that grace may increase? Should we continue in sin in order that grace may increase? Now, it must have been a question that was in the minds of some of, the, of Paul's hearers and, to be honest, reflects an attitude that we might all have to some extent. The attitude is this, that we take the things that we do wrong very lightly because in the back of our minds, we know that God is going to forgive us anyway, right? So we might think, well, I know I shouldn't really be doing this, but God is going to forgive me, so... What's the big deal? It'll be okay in the long run. Of course, none of us would actually say that out loud. But it niggles at the back of our minds somewhat. Or from a Reformed theological perspective, I'm chosen, I'm sanctified, I'm going to be glorified. God will never let me go. God will never let me go. Therefore, my sin doesn't really matter all that much. Or as poet W.H. Auden puts it, I like committing crimes. God likes forgiving them. Really, the world is admirably arranged. <laughs> this isn't the first time that Paul has addressed this line of thinking. In chapter 3, verse 8, he acknowledged that some were accusing him by saying, let us do evil that good may come. In chapter 5, verse 20, he writes, Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. The anticipated question is, if God's response to increased sin is to pour out superabundant grace, then maybe we should sin all the more so that God can be all the more gracious. How does Paul respond? By no means. Other translations say, may it never be. Or, of course not. Or, I should hope not. The new Gronholtz version says, don't be silly. <laughs> it's incongruous to think that we who are saved by grace through faith, this not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, can go out and sin to our heart's content. So Paul lays out a cogent theological argument in three points for why, as authentic believers of Christ, we cannot cannot, cannot continue to live in sin. Point number one, we have died to sin. How can we who died in, to sin go on living in it? Paul writes. 
It's the second rhetorical question with an obvious answer. Dead men and women can't live in sin. But this raises a lot of questions. If Christians are dead to sin, then why do we sin? Can we attain sinless perfection in this life, as some would argue? Obviously not. So let's just take a poll this morning. If you're a Christian and you have never sinned, would you please stand? None of us would be able to do that. So what does Paul mean when he says that we died to sin? Well, let me tell you first what it doesn't mean. Clearly, Paul does not mean that believers cannot sin or are immune to temptation. Some have used the argument that if you go into a morgue and try to tempt a dead person to commit some sin, you will not succeed because he is dead. Likewise, it is said that Christians are dead to sin. Sin can't entice them. But apart from the obvious fact that there are no such Christians in in evidence today, nor has there ever been, such a view makes all the moral commands in the Bible to be superfluous. Why command me not to lust if I can't lust because I'm dead to it? Why command me not to steal if I'm dead to greed? Why command me not to gossip or be envious or lie? And the list goes on. Besides, there are many examples in the Bible of otherwise godly men and women falling into serious sin. We know the stories. Noah got drunk. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all lied. David committed adultery and then murder. And after he wrote many of the Psalms, Peter denied the Lord and later acted in hypocrisy toward the Gentile believers in Antioch. And in Romans chapter 7, Paul shares his own struggle with sin. For I do not understand my own actions, he writes. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin who dwells within me. So here Paul does not mean mean that believers cannot sin or that they're immune to temptation. So what does he mean? In chapter 5, Paul goes to great lengths to demonstrate that all people are identified either with Adam under the reign of sin and death or under Christ under the reign of grace and righteousness. There are no other categories, according to the Apostle Paul in Scripture. Under Adam, sin and death, under Christ, grace, righteousness, forgiveness. Quoting Stephen J. Cole, who is the pastor of Flagstaff Christian Fellowship, he says, By virtue of our physical birth, we all enter this world in Adam. His sin was imputed to us. When Adam sinned, we sinned. But when we trust Christ... We are transferred from Adam's headship to Christ's headship. Just as Adam's sin, one sin condemned us all, so Christ's one act of obedience on the cross justifies all who receive his gracious gift of eternal life. So what is Paul saying? That if you are in Christ, when he died on the the cross, you died in him. It's not something that you feel necessarily, but it's a fact that is true because God declares it to be true and we believe it by faith. If Christ our head died, then we who are his body died with him. 
This is our new status, our new position before God. Since Christ died to sin and we are now in him, we died to sin as well. We derive the benefits, like Jimmy talked about last week, we derive the benefits of his death because we are now in Christ. Verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed so we might no longer be enslaved to sin. Enslaved to sin. For, who, for whoever has died is freed from sin. But if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. You remember Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. And if any of you went through the Navigator's topical memory system back in the day, yet you know the verse, it's embedded in your heart and mind. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And this life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If we, if we have confessed Jesus as Lord and Savior, we have been crucified with him. And as a result, we are no longer enslaved to sin. Sin no longer has dominion over us, Paul says here in Romans chapter 6. We cannot continue to live in sin. He's not, he's not talking about committing acts of sin, but rather living in sin as a way of life. Think of it like this. Apart from Christ, we are living in a cesspool of sin. Not a pretty picture, is it? Swimming around, floating around in a cesspool with all the garbage that's there with it. Paul says it like this in Ephesians 2, You were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. Floating around in a cesspool of sin. Just let your mind linger there for a moment. But Paul's next words in Ephesians 2 are two of the most profound words in all of Scripture. But God. But God. Who is rich in mercy. Out of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Apart from Christ, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that is, eternally separated from God, having no hope and without God, Paul says in Ephesians 2. As I like to say, we were in deep yogurt apart from Christ. But God, when we trusted Christ as Lord and Savior, made us alive together with him, rescued us from the dominion of darkness, brought us into the kingdom of his Son so that we could die to sin and live the abundant eternal life that he has for us. God lifted us out of that cesspool of sin, placed our feet on a rock, as the psalmist says in Psalm 18, so that we no longer live in sin as a way of life. We have solid ground to stand on, a new direction, a new purpose, a new worldview. We get out of the cesspool and lean into 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. Remember, you navigators, folks, if we confess our sins, what? God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins 
and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we who were dead in our trespasses and sins have been saved, had been made alive together with Christ so that in part we could be dead to the power of sin. I saw a cartoon recently that might summarize how maybe many of us feel about this. Two women are talking and one says to the other, well, I haven't actually died to sin, but I did feel kind of faint once. (laughs) Is that you when it comes to sin in your life? Just kind of play around with it? Like a bug flying around the bug zapper? Guess what happens to the bug if he flies around the bug zapper long enough? He's going to get zapped. Not dead to sin, but kind of faint towards it. Be careful if you get too cozy, it might zap you. So point number one, we have died to the power of sin. Point number two, we have been baptized into Christ's death. Verse three, do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might also walk in newness of life. Paul paints a very poignant but controversial picture of what he's talking about. Controversial because some would argue that Paul is talking about water baptism and particularly that immersion is the only correct mode of baptism. Or others were saying, no, he's talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I think Paul is simply referring to the spiritual reality that takes place at baptism, which, that takes place at conversion, which baptism symbolizes. Paul is assuming that his readers would understand the concept of baptism. Quoting Stephen Cole again, the apostles all associated saving faith with water baptism to such an extent that the concept of an unbaptized believer would have been foreign to them. When people in that day professed faith in Jesus Christ, they expressed it by being baptized in water. Paul assumes that all the Christians in Rome, all of his readers, would have been baptized. Verse 3, he says, all of us who have been baptized, all of us who are part participant, participating in this letter that's being read, have been baptized. And usually it, was, it happened fairly quickly in the New Testament. So what does baptism picture anyway? Well, the main thought is of identification. To be baptized into Christ's death means to be totally identified or radically united with Christ in his death. When he paid the penalty for our sin, the penalty was paid for us in him. When he died to sin, conquering its power, we who believe in him died to the power and dominion of sin as well. So why does Paul emphasize not only Christ's death, but also the fact that we were buried with him through baptism? Well, burial is mentioned because it confirms that death has really occurred. Really, really, really occurred. To say that we were buried with Christ signifies that we really, really, really died with him as well. Baptism by immersion pictures this. When a person goes under the water, it symbolizes death. And when she comes out of the water, it signifies that she is now walking in newness of life. She's a new creation. Baptism pictures this spiritual reality. 
When we became Christians, when we became followers of Christ, we became fully identified with him in his death and burial. And we are united with him in that historic action. Now, I'm not arguing for immersion as the only correct mode of baptism. I'm an ordained Presbyterian, after all. But I do think that immersion more graphically pictures this idea of dying to self and being raised to new life in Christ. So I pastored Boulevard Park Presbyterian Church for 14 years, and I like to say that we were really Baptisterians. We had a baptistry at the front of the sanctuary, and we used that most often when someone was ready to be baptized. We sprinkled from time to time, but I do think that baptism by immersion is a clearer picture of being united to Christ in his death and his resurrection. When those 19 men were baptized on Thursday evening in Sun Lakes, it was a clear picture of them dying to their old way of life as they went under the water and coming out of the water as new creations, having been born again and beginning now to walk in a new way of life. I'm excited to see how these men are going to grow in their walk with Christ in these days and weeks ahead. To sum up then, Paul uses baptism as an illustration to help us understand our union with Christ. It pictures our death, burial, and resurrection with Christ, which took place historically when Christ died, was buried, and was raised on behalf of his people whom he redeemed. And it's applied to us the instant that we believed and it's, and it's expressed symbolically in baptism, whether by immersion or by sprinkling. Point number three, we are united with Christ in his resurrection, verse five. For if we have been united with him in his death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Christ was raised bodily from the grave, not just spiritually. But spiritually, we are in him, so that when he was raised in victory over sin and death, we were raised in victory over sin and death as well. Paul says it like this in Colossians 3, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth, for you have died. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Well, unfortunately, we're not going to receive resurrection bodies until Christ returns. A life that is completely free of sin and death and disease, and the list goes on and on. I would like it to be sooner, but that's not my call. But before then, the action on our part as a result of our spiritual resurrection with Christ is that we should walk in newness of life, Paul says. So what does that look like? It means that our new walk in Christ should be totally distinct from our old way of life. We have a new way of living. It means we should develop transformed minds through God's word so that our whole worldview lines up with Scripture. Our motives for what we do and why we do them should no longer be selfish, but rather for the glory of God. Our attitudes, maybe particularly when we go through trials, should not be complaining, but rather thanksgiving to God. Our emotions should be marked by joy 
and hope in the Lord. Our character should be developing the fruit of the Spirit. Our use of our time and money should be managed in the time of eternal values. We should be walking in consistency with God's ob- and obedience to God's commandments, which are for our good anyway. So the description of a newness of life as a walk implies a long, steady, gradual process. It can sometimes be a grind, and we know the, injur- the journey will entail all kinds of challenges and roadblocks and trials along the way. Again, Paul is not talking about sinless perfection here, but rather a direction of life in which we sin less and less as we grow closer to Christ. That ought to be happening in our life. As the title of Eugene Peterson's book expresses it, the Christian life is a long obedience in the same direction. So, point number one, we have died to sin. Point number two, we've been baptized into Christ's death. Point number three, we have been united into Christ's resurrection. Now, three quick takeaways. Number one, do not presume on God's grace as permission to sin. Do not presume on God's grace as permission to sin. As I said earlier, Many Christians who are people who profess to be Christians simply think I can go ahead and sin because I'm going to be forgiven. After all, I'm under God's grace. I have a theological word for that. It's stupid. (laughs) It ignores the fact that, that sin does not help you, right? Sin does not move in to help you achieve your objectives It moves in to reign over you and enslave you and reign in death over you. We see this in our recovery programs, right, David? Where addiction to drugs and alcohol enslave our men to sin. On the other hand, we get to witness daily men and women who have been freed from the bondage and the power and the dominion of sin and to begin to to walk in newness of life. I think of my friend Joe, who is 55 years old and has been enslaved by alcohol since he was 13 years old. Couldn't hold a job, couldn't get up to hold a job for for any length of time, couldn't live in a place for very long. Uh, He did what we call couch serving with friends and family. One day he'd had enough. He came to the mission, went through the year-long recovery program, and then another year in our internship program, out, or in our men's long recovery program out at Riverton, went to the internship program, and along the way he met Christ in a profound way. Was baptized, now he's on our staff in our welcome center. He's an absolute gem as he works with guys in our program. Joe is an example of one who died to sin and is now walking in newness of life. Takeaway number two. If you have trusted Christ, make a distinct break with your past and declare it publicly by being baptized. In Paul's day, it was unthinkable to think of a Christian who was not baptized. Becoming a Christian means burning all your bridges to your past life of sin. If you have drugs in your possession, destroy them. If you have alcohol and you are tempted to get drunk, pour it down the drain. If if going to bars tempt you, don't go to bars. If pornography is a problem, get some system of accountability 
or stop using the internet, which is almost impossible in this day and age. Follow the example of the new believers in Acts chapter 19 who burned, get this, 50,000 days wages worth of magic books and then demonstrate your new life in Christ by being baptized. Takeaway number three, meditate often on your union with Christ and what it means. Meditate often about your union with Christ and what it means. You are now in Christ Think about it accordingly and act accordingly. Martin Lloyd-Jones uses this illustration. He talks about free slaves who were freed by President Lincoln during the Civil War. His Emancipation Proclamation declared slaves to be free. But many of the older slaves had not known any other way of life. They were born slaves and had lived all their lives under a cruel master. But now they died to slavery. They were declared free, but they didn't feel free. When they saw their old master coming, they may have shook in fear and even obeyed them if they gave a command. But they didn't have to obey him. His power over them was broken. They did not have to live under his tyranny. They could walk in newness of life. Even so, in Christ, we who are Christ's followers have died to sin. We no longer have to live under its power. We don't have to obey it any longer. We have been raised with Christ so that now we can walk in newness of life. So let's think about our new position in him. Our union with Christ in his death and resurrection is the foundation for separation from sin and walking in newness of life. May God bless to our hearts the reading of his word. Let me pray. So, Father, thank you for your word. God, thank you for this possibility of new life in Christ. Help us to walk in it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.